This is an Area Code podcast. Hi, I'm Amy Simmons. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And welcome to the Attached to the Invisible podcast. Hello, listeners. I'm so excited about this interview today with Becky Castle-Miller. She recently finished a master's thesis on discipling our emotions, and in it, she analyzes evangelical teachings on emotions and what we can learn from the Gospels about emotions. I initially interviewed her for my other podcast series, Prophetic Imagination Station. Over there, I'm using Christian hardcore lyrical themes to explore attachment and shame in evangelicalism. So if you're a fan of this podcast, you'll probably want to catch that series over there. It's called Shamecore Records, and it's more of a documentary style, which has been lots of fun. As I'm going through Shamecore Records, there might be a few interviews with with therapists or theologians that would also fit this podcast, so you can be on the lookout for those episodes as well. This interview with Becky Castle-Miller was so great, I wanted to be able to share all of it. She's published a couple of books in conjunction with work by Scott McKnight, but she's also working currently on publishing a book based on her thesis, which I'm super excited about. Wanted to let you know, going into this conversation, that we talk about sexual abuse and spiritual abuse. It's in the second half of the interview. Without further ado, here's my interview with Becky Castle-Miller. So I have... Emotions Can You Trust Them by James Dobson and The Spirit-Controlled Temperament by Tim LaHaye. And these books are so bad, I I actually did throw The Spirit-Controlled Temperament across the room, but I also wanted to do it multiple times with both of them. So I picked up these books a couple of years ago when I was still living in the Netherlands, and there was an international Baptist church about half an hour away from where I lived, and we did a a cooperative vacation Bible school with them because our church was small, their church was small. And so we did a, a international uh, vacation Bible school with them. So mm-hmm. I was there waiting for my kids to get done with vacation Bible school one day when they were remodeling their library and they were getting rid of a lot of books. And I said, oh, I'm in seminary. I could use some more books. Can I take a look? And I brought home stacks and stacks of books. Some of them, a few of them, were books that I could actually use for reference, but most of them were books that I wanted to pull off the shelf so that no one else would read them. I knew I was going to work on my thesis on emotions and discipleship in the church, and so I was grabbing books that looked like they were about personality, emotion, relationships, etc. Mm-hmm. I also removed a few from the library that were against women's ordination and tucked those on my shelf as well uh, for research purposes and to um, take them out of circulation. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so I found these books to be really useful because I've been trying to trace how we got to such an unhealthy place about emotion in the American church. And I found my answers. <laughs> yeah. So what did you find out reading these books? Well, I realized I had to go further back than the 1960s, further, definitely further back from the 80s. Um, I actually went all the way back to 1952 to the Four Spiritual Laws tract by Bill Bright. Um, this tract, uh, written by the guy who started uh, Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, 
This tract has been given out, according to them, 2.5 billion times. I don't know an American Christian alive today who has not had some kind of encounter with the four spiritual laws. A number of people came to follow Jesus through a tract like the four spiritual laws. And in that very gospel tract, it teaches people not to trust their emotions. It gives the four spiritual laws, and then essentially, it's not called the fifth spiritual law, but at the end of the tract, it's basically the fifth spiritual law. It says, in all caps, do not depend on feelings. And there's an illustration of a train, and the engine that pulls the train is called fact, and the caboose is labeled feelings. And on that page, he says, the Bible is our authority, not our feelings. He talks about how we need to have trust and faith in the trustworthiness of God, not in our feelings. And then he says, Christians don't depend on feelings or emotions. And he contrasts that with putting our faith in God. So trusting God is is pitched as the exact opposite of paying attention to and trusting and listening to our feelings. So 2.5 billion times. Now, I'm sure... I've certainly picked up a tract or received a tract and thrown it straight in the trash. I guess you've probably done the same thing. So some of these, you know, some of those 2.5 billion didn't actually get opened and read, but a lot of them did. And so there's many Christians alive today who became followers of Jesus in the past 70 years, who, when they were taught the good news of Jesus, were taught from the beginning not to trust their emotions. I mean, it's so striking thinking about like, He's basically like, here's the essence of it. And by the way, like, I'm going to add this thing about emotions. Like, out of all the things that he could have included in this one, like, very formative tract, that's the thing that got added in. I think that is so fascinating and terrifying. And when I did a small survey while I was doing my thesis research of friends from around the world about what they'd been taught about emotions in the church and what those messages were and how they damaged them, the number one message that people reported learning about their emotions was not to trust them. Mm -hmm. Given the language of this tract, which has made its way around the world, is that any surprise that Christians have learned not to trust their emotions when it's in the gospel presentation that many of them received? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And so that, yeah, that's 1952. And it just, and that, sets this foundation for how Christians are supposed to engage with emotions. And then it goes from there. So I did a lot of digging into this Dobson book and this LaHaye book, as well as others. But these are the two I really emphasized because I know they were so influential. And I actually realized that I can trace the connection of Tim LaHaye to Bill Bright, and then I can trace the connection of James Dobson to Bill Bright. They were both shaped and formed by Bill Bright. Dobson was actually a mentee of Bright and wrote the foreword for Bill Bright's last book. So they had a very close relationship. And you can see that anti-emotion influence in Dobson's writing. You can see it in LaHaye's writing. Uh, Tim LaHaye talks in his book about how he used the four spiritual laws to share the gospel with people after his daughter had, his 16-year-old daughter had come across it at a crew event. So, Bill Bright's influence is 
obvious in in these two books. So you've got the Spirit Control Temperament, which was published originally in 1966, and it was Tyndale's first non-Bible book. Hmm. So the Tyndale offices are actually five minutes from my new house in Wheaton. If I look out the window and there are no leaves on the trees, I can see the big Tyndale office. Um, And they built that building off of money from Tim LaHaye's books. I mean, left behind later. But he got his start with, with the spirit control temperament. And this has been republished and republished and republished and sent all over the world. When I did my survey, a friend from Nigeria told me that one of the books that damaged her emotionally in the church was the spirit control temperament in Nigeria. Hmm. And she came oh away with gosh. that same message. Don't trust my emotions. So this has international influence. And that's a shame for the American church to have exported anti-emotionalism. So yeah. this book by Tim LaHaye is supposedly about personality and temperament, but the whole middle section of the book is basically a rant against emotion. Mm. And I couldn't believe it as I read through it, he actually calls emotions sins. Wow. He flat out says, anger is one of two universal sins of mankind. That's on page 70. Mm. Anxiety is a form of fear. And he talks about how fear is a sin. So basically having an anxiety disorder means you're perpetually sinning. Mm -hmm. Anger grieves the Holy Spirit. Fear quenches the Holy Spirit. He says, this is a quote, it is my personal opinion that these two emotions, anger and fear, bring more Christians into bondage to the law of sin than any other emotions or desires. And it's not nuanced. It's just flat out emotions are sinful. (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. And right. the funny thing is, he actually starts from a good place and a positive and accurate understanding of emotion, and then he just goes wildly off track somewhere along the way. He talks about how people are affected emotionally by what's placed in their minds. And this is true if you look at the latest neuroscience theories on emotion, like Lisa Feldman Barrett's theory of constructed emotion. Uh, which she writes about in her book, How Emotions Are Made. That's basically what she concludes from doing field research on emotion. What we put in our brains is what creates our emotions. The experiences we have, the cultural expectations we're taught around emotion, the emotional vocabulary we grow up with, and our own past experiences all work together in an instance to construct an emotion in our mind when our body feels physical sensations. So emotion, in her theory, is making meaning out of our sensations. So LaHaye is right. In 1966, he's correct that our emotions do come out of what we fill our mind with. Um, Mm -hmm. But then he just goes off onto this wild track that talking about how emotion is opposed to rationality, which is not true. It's all part of the the same thought process. And then emotions are sinful. Not only are they sinful, but they're motivated by selfishness. Like anger is motivated by selfishness, Mm. fear is motivated by selfishness, and basically, if you struggle with anxiety and depression, your mind is not controlled by Christ. What a condemning message for people who struggle with mental illness. He's got this picture, this weird cartoon picture of a man's head with all these thoughts inside of it, these all these sins like lust, adultery, and drunkenness, and fear and anger. And so this is a man without Christ who feels fear and anger. And and he he actually names subsections of fear, anxiety, worry, depression, insecurity. 
so he's basically calling these mental illnesses sinful and saying that you don't have Christ if you struggle with these things. Yeah, yeah. There's two uh, implications here uh, that I mean, one is that it is condemning for people that are experiencing these things. And it also is a, uh, a terrible uh, di- diagnosis. Uh, so it doesn't really help you figure out, well, like, what do you do with these things? Because it just leads to a spiritual, like, well, you just need to pray more or you need to make sure that your mind is claimed by Christ. Right. And then how do you do that? Who knows? I'm not sure. Right. And his outworking of this is incredibly destructive. He includes these anecdotes that I think he thought made himself look good, but they make him look terrible. They make him look like a monster because there's one example of a Christian woman who came to him and he doesn't use the word abusive about her husband, but everything he describes about her husband is he seems to be treating her abusively. And he tells her that her reaction um, is the problem. Her reaction of being angry about being abused is selfishness. And she needed to stop indulging her selfishness and stop letting her anger predominate in her mind because that was just going to make her husband treat her worse. So he sends her back to an abusive relationship. And then he writes this in a book. Right. To say, look 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 at at me. This is a great example. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And. The, the most mind-blowing part of the book for me is in this edition on page 91, a doctor actually came to him who said, you ministers are hurting people's emotional lives. He said, I, I did my internship at a mental institution and the overwhelming, this is quoting the doctor, the overwhelming majority of those people had a religious background and were there because of fear induced by guilt complexes. So what this family doctor explains to LaHaye is that, hey, what you're doing is literally putting people in mental hospitals. You're damaging their emotional lives. You have to stop. He was warned. He was warned. And he includes this anecdote in the book about how he disagreed with the doctor. He told the doctor people have guilt complexes because they're guilty. He was warned and he refused to listen and he includes this in the book in defense of himself. He was warned that he was causing people religious trauma. And that is the point that my mind was officially blown with this book. And that's when you wanted to throw it across the room. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and in your thesis, you, you say that, I think you say that uh, Dobson, in comparison, looks better. Yes. Than Lay. He does. So, uh, <laughs> which feels like a weird thing to say right? right now. But yeah, help me understand that part. Like, okay, so wh- where, where does this go jump next? Jump forward 15 years or so. We're in 1980. James Dobson writes emotions can you trust them which is kind of a compilation of some of his slightly earlier work and and right so after reading LaHaye you read Dobson and you're like you know actually this isn't it's not as blatantly bad I actually wrote good in the margins of the Dobson book at least seven times he he made some good points some of that is due I think to the advances in psychology in the interim between the two books maybe there was more understanding of emotion he Dobson does have some positive things to say about anger, that anger can have some good uses. He doesn't call emotions sins, which is a positive step. Mm-hmm. 
Good job, Dobson. Um, but he, so his twisted thinking on emotion is more subtle. And actually, I think that's more dangerous mm. because it's harder to catch if you don't know what you're looking for. Having done so much research on emotion, I was picking up on the subtleties and, and comparing researchers. So, for example, Dr. Dobson says uh, on page 10 about the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it includes not a single reference to feelings. Literally, the entire chapter is about the emotion of love. And he concludes somehow that this chapter has no reference to feelings in it. And I don't understand that at all. But that reminds me of a researcher named Matthew Elliott, who wrote his doctoral dissertation on emotions in the Bible. And one thing Elliott points out is that so often Christians try to say that emotion words in the Bible don't mean emotion. We try mm-hmm. to say that. Well, I mean, go ahead. Right. It makes me think about like, uh, I, well, for example, DC talks uh, classic song. Love is a verb. Sure. But people talk about love is a choice, not a feeling. Right. So I'm assuming that that is part of like where this has led for us to say phrases like that. So, yes. yeah, help me understand like it, it coming from that, like love is a choice. It's not a feeling. Uh, but you're saying that scripture actually like means a feeling when it talks about love or other emotions. Yes. So Elliot points out that Christians will try to take joy, for example, and say, well, joy doesn't really mean happiness. It means like spiritual contentment, but it doesn't. It it actually means the emotion of joy. And when um, even if we look at the Beatitudes, when Jesus talks about blessed are that can be translated happy are. He's really talking about happiness. We're going to be happy hmm. as part of our you're Christian like, life. You're turning my evangelical brain upside down because that's all that I've heard most of my life is like, well, it's this like uh, ethereal sort of like version of a of the bodily sensation. It's not actually connected, right? It's right. not actually connected to like real human experience. It's more like this ideal. And Matthew Elliott does a wonderful job. So if someone wants to read that in more detail, his book is called Faithful Feelings based on his dissertation. And he details how emotion words in the Bible really are emotion, including love. And this is something that Scott McKnight has worked on. Um, Scott is my was my seminary professor and is my friend and mentor. And Scott's definition of love includes an affective component. Like Mm. godly love, God's love for us and our love for one another is to be with someone, to be for someone, to be growing in a Christ-like direction together and to be affectionate. It has an affective component. It's not biblical love if it's not affective. So Mm -hmm. this, this, so Dobson starts out by dismissing that love in the Bible is an emotion, which is a weird Mm. flex, but it's, it's obviously Uh influenced our thinking because we've both heard it growing up in church. Yeah. It reminds me of this uh, theologian talking about, he says, when theologians start talking about love, it loses this visceral like feeling to it. And I think that's what you're pointing to, or like th- this explains that so much that like, even as I think about like, God loves me, it doesn't feel effective. It doesn't feel, I mean, that's some work that I've been doing, but mm-hmm. for m- most of my life, when I think about like God loving me, it's not the same as like, as I love my son and I want to like cuddle him and hold him. It's this like kind of statement sort of thing more than it is, uh, like you said, aff- affective. God's love includes like it was um, 
Sid and Jeff Holsclaw who wrote God Likes Me or what is the name of their book? But it's about that. It's God actually has affection for us. And that's something that we lose when we think that love is not an emotion. But Dobson really divorces uh, emotion from reason, which is another common thing that we've heard, you know, be logical, don't be emotional, be rational, stop being so emotional, don't be driven by your feelings, which is totally a false construct. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. It's actually, it was the Greco-Roman philosophers who made that distinction between the passions and reason. So actually the thinking in the church is more influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy than by a scriptural view of emotions. And that's perpetuated in books like this Dobson book, where he says, quote, emotions must always be accountable to the faculties of reason and will. It's a false dichotomy because what neuroscientists are showing is that emotion and thought are all part of the same process. And Matthew Elliott, even writing, I think, 20 years ago, maybe not quite that long ago, um, talks about the cognitive view of emotions. Even before the, the theory of constructed emotion was proposed, he was talking about the cognitive view of emotion, that our thinking gives rise to our emotions. They're interrelated, and Dr. Barrett shows that extensively in how emotions are made. Yes, we can change our emotions by changing our thinking, but we do not divorce emotion from reason. And in fact, if we take emotion out of our decision-making process, we make terrible decisions. The people who lose the emotion-making parts of their brain make bad decisions. There have been experiments done on that. So we actually don't want people to make unemotional decisions. So that's another subtle thing that Dobson does to be anti Emotion. I mean, his title of his book is Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And the implied answer is no, of course you can't trust your, you can't, you can't trust your emotions. Given this teaching, what, what place do you see uh, anger and sadness having in the evangelical church? They haven't had a place. And there's been an idea that Christians should be positive. So you are surprised when I say blessed are could be translated happy are. We don't talk about mm -hmm. that. And yet, at the same time, there is this idea that Christians should be happy. So I, I, I yeah. don't know why that disconnect is having is happening. I want to look more into that. But but there is a disconnect there. Can I can I? Yeah. Can I give a thought? Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's a way of coping with this with this dissonance of you should. We've gotten this message. You should be happy. But even pastors don't feel happy. So then they're like interpreting scripture like. Well, I'm not really happy, but I am happy because I should be happy. It just looks different. It just looks like anxiety. <laughs> I don't know. You know. I think that's true. I think it's it's hard to find happiness. And there's so many sad, terrible, awful, anger-inducing things in the world. We try to cope with that. Um we try to settle for crumbs of reassurance and we over-spiritualize emotion. So we don't have to face the question, why are we not happy? I can give a, just a little personal rabbit trail before getting back to your question. I had to face that question in therapy. I've been seeing a trauma therapist for the past couple years and I, I lost it in a session one time when he asked me to think about being happy. Hmm. I had to confront how deeply 
unhappy I was and that I had no idea that what would even make me happy because I had been taught all my life that happiness isn't a goal for a Christian. We just need to put up with suffering and be joyful, find that esoteric spiritual contentment that we call joy instead of actual enjoyment in life. And it, it like devastated me for like two weeks of, of having to introspectively ask myself that question about this deep well of sadness inside of me and where that was coming from and, and what would it look like to actually be happy. I can say that after a lot of trauma work, I, I am genuinely happy. I feel enjoyment. I feel happiness. That deep well of sadness has been drained in proper therapy. Mm. But I think until people do that work... They they don't yeah. they don't even know how to grapple with joy. So so that place of sadness and anger like it exists in Christians, but we don't know what to do with it. It hasn't had a proper place, so we suppress it and ignore it, and we pretend like we're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think is the primary strategy that we have for suppressing those things? I think as it's Christians? I think it's Alison Cook who calls it spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm. Where we use spiritual platitudes to resuppress things when they start to surface in ourselves or in other people, you know, phrases like, well, it was God's will mm-hmm. or remember the Bible says rejoice in everything. Um, or we even almost take a perverse delight in being persecuted because it means we're doing something right instead of saying well, is but maybe this is actually systemic oppression and, and we should fight it. We don't have to accept it. So the American church has no place for lament. And yet there's so much scriptural precedent for lament and grief practices in the Old Testament for crying out to God, for rending our garments. We see Jesus experiencing deep emotional grief over what he sees in Jerusalem of people stoning the prophets and of not listening to the messengers God sent. There's deep weeping there. We see Jesus grieving over the death of his personal BFF Lazarus and, and his beloved friends, Martha and Mary and grieving with them. So we see Jesus understanding lament because he came from a culture that knew how to lament. He came from the culture that wrote the Psalms. He, he quotes the Psalms. He knows how to lament, but we've lost that. So I think that God gives us a place for anger and sadness in scripture and we've thrown it out. What's the impact of that on the American church? We ignore our emotions. We pretend they aren't there. We lie about them to ourselves. We lie about them to each other and we just shove them deeper and deeper down until we can't cope anymore. And then we completely fall apart and blow up everywhere. We, we explode with unhealthy expressions of emotion on other people and we destroy ourselves from the inside out with all these emotions that we don't process. So looking at psychology in scripture, um, you know, as you've been looking at both of those things, what do you think would be a better teaching on emotions contrasted with Dobson and LaHaye? I think we need to start with Jesus as our example. That's how our discipleship life should be formed in the church is by looking at Jesus. And I feel like we do a pretty good job on discipling other aspects of our lives. 
For example, prayer. We think about how did Jesus pray? When did Jesus pray? Where did Jesus pray? Who did Jesus pray for? What did Jesus say in his prayers? And we try to model our Christian prayer life after him, which is exactly as it should be. Or money. We think, what did Jesus teach about money? What did Jesus say about money? How did Jesus use money? How did Jesus tell other people to use money? What parables and and examples do we have about money? And so then we try to align our giving priorities with Jesus's and our view of money with Jesus's view. So we disciple those areas of our lives, but we don't disciple our emotions. And so we miss a huge aspect of our life as followers of Jesus because we're not asking ourselves, what did Jesus feel? And what does that teach me about my emotions? Mm -hmm. So a healthier message about emotion in the church needs to start with just looking at Jesus's emotions, reading the Gospels and seeing when he was genuinely joyful, when he was happy, when he was afraid, when he was sad, when he was angry, when he was surprised. And he has all those emotions and the Gospel writers record them for us in very vivid emotional language both sometimes naming the emotions and others showing the outward expression of emotion where we kind of have to perceive what he's feeling, but we see the expression of his emotion. So we start there. We look at Jesus. He was wildly emotional. He had both comfortable emotions like joy and uncomfortable emotions like anger. And then we work out what does that look like in our lives, just as we would any other aspect of our discipleship lives. And I think it means accepting our emotions, feeling our emotions, bringing our emotions to God in prayer, mm-hmm. getting help for our emotions when we are struggling, and not thinking that our emotions are sinful. We've got to change that. Our emotions are not wrong. Our emotions are not bad. Our emotions are not immoral. Our emotions are not going to lead us away from God. But our discipled emotions actually enhance our obedience to God. They motivate us. Our emotions give us energy to move toward a goal. Emotions literally prepare our body to take action toward a goal. That's how they work in our brains. And so we can use that to motivate our compassion, our obedience, our love, all the actions that we should be taking as Christians, our emotions drive those. And so if we ignore emotion, we're just these hollowed out non-human robot shells. So you just real casually explained uh, your philosophy on the purpose of emotions. <laughs> I like that you just went in there. Could you, could you slow that down a little bit for people that have this idea that, that emotions get in the way or emotions are a byproduct of the rest of life? Emotions are uncomfortable sometimes. They're unpleasant. They take time to deal with and they don't feel good sometimes. We have to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. That's number one. We're never going to have a human life where we don't experience emotion because God created us as emotional beings. God is emotional. Jesus is emotional in his incarnated self. And we're emotional as beings made in God's image. So we will never eradicate emotion. The goal of emotional health and a process toward emotional health is not to arrive at the other side being unemotional. Emotional health doesn't mean unemotional. 
Emotional health means appropriate emotional responses for the situation and healing all the damaged and hurt stuff in us that makes our emotions so much harder. And, and then embracing and enjoying the emotional beings that God created us to be. What is the purpose of emotions from a, you know, a, a neurobiological standpoint? So according to Barrett, who's the neuroscientist I've read most on emotion as far as updated emotional views, because emotion is our body and our brains making meaning out of our sensations and motivating us toward a goal, emotion serves to prepare us to act, Mm -hmm. essentially. And... That's very clear in cases like fear. If we see something that frightens us, our brain constructs, oh, hey, fear, alarm bells, and begins to take our body for defensive or offensive action, whatever Mm -hmm. course we need to take for that, and actually gets our body systems going, our adrenaline pumping prepares us to run if we need to. So emotion is important for taking action. It's also important from a sociological perspective for making connections with other human beings. There are some cultures, not American culture, um, where emotion is not perceived as something that happens inside an individual, but as something that happens between two people. And emotion is a shared experience in some cultures. In other cultures, emotion is more oriented toward action. Um, Like the Himba people in Namibia would look at a smile and they don't call that happiness they call that mm. laughing it's about mm. the action not uh-huh. not the emotion as we yeah. understand emotion so biologically speaking emotion is part of our interacting with the world our perception of the world our making predictions of the future and our mm. functioning in the world we need emotion as part of our everyday human functioning from a scriptural perspective God created us with emotions for a reason, because for whatever reason, God is emotional and there's goodness in you. God, God is good. God's creation is good. Emotion is part of that. So emotion is good. Emotion is Tove, as Scott McKnight would say, his his new book on a church called Tove. Goodness. It's good. Emotion is good. Um, And so God created us with emotion because we're made in God's image fully. So the purposes of emotion scripturally, I think partly are just to make life beautiful and enjoyable and fun. Positive emotions, and I don't even like to use the word positive. I like to say comfortable emotions because I don't want to like ascribe moral value to emotion. There's not positive and negative, but there is comfortable and uncomfortable. I like that a lot. But comfortable emotions are more than comfortable. They feel amazing. True happiness is a delight to experience. So is joy. So is a fun surprise. Let me ask you this. What about sadness? How does sadness... What's what's the point of sadness? Sadness is awful to experience. That's not one of those like, I think this makes life better kind of emotions, but we have to have it because we live in a broken world where terrible things happen. 
And sadness is our brain's response to seeing something awful, usually a loss of some kind, and saying, hey, that's bad. That shouldn't have happened. The emotion of sadness isn't bad, but it's our brain's way of coping with or identifying or naming something that's bad. When we feel sad, it's because something bad or wrong has happened. So our sadness is a clue to what we value. If we don't care about something, we're not sad if it goes away. So sometimes our sadness is an indication of how much we love something or someone, how much we care about it, how much it matters to us. And our sadness is our processing and naming that loss. It doesn't feel good while we're feeling it, but I've found that on the other side of getting through an experience of sadness, I feel better. Because God created us with a need to grieve losses. And so when we do that, when we've grieved the loss, when we've sat with the sadness and let it exist in our body and and let those uncomfortable sensations swirl through us, however you experience sadness, which is unique and, and different and distinct from anyone else's, there's a cleanliness on the other side almost like being washed off in a shower at least that's how I feel on the other side of an experience of sadness I feel like I've been like my tears have washed something in my soul that helps me move toward accepting a loss and finding healing and wholeness on the other side of it so I don't understand exactly what that process of feeling and emotion does for us but I know it's important and bypassing it doesn't do us any favors. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then this year, so we're we're recording right now in February 2021. This past year has been a year of a lot of grief. I wonder, um, I think that Dobson, Dobson is still alive, and I think LaHaye yes. is as well. I believe they're both still, so, yeah. But kind of from the perspective of these books and this teaching, uh, what do you think this sort of evangelical teaching about emotions would have to say about uh, this past year regarding this grief? What's, what's the unhealthy... The un- some of the unhealthy responses to it are God willed it, so we have to be okay with it. Mm. Um, which goes into things like, well, I don't need to worry about taking pandemic precautions because if God wants me to die, I'm just going to die and there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, that's not emotion exactly, Mm -hmm. but you know, you, it's almost like a way of not dealing with Mm -hmm. grief. Like if my grandpa dies of COVID and it was just his time to go and there was nothing I could have done about it and God just willed it and I need to be okay with it. Like that bypasses the anger at how our government has mishandled things. The fury at death that we get from Jesus himself. Jesus hates death. Jesus defeated his defeated death. Like Jesus is the enemy of death. We don't have to accept death as Christians. The, our resurrection life is like the ultimate defeat of death. We, we don't have to accept death. Um, Death is not good. Death is not God's will. So it bypasses that anger, that righteous indignation that death still exists in the world. And it can bypass the sadness and the grief. And it, it can artificially shove us to an acceptance stage when we haven't done the grief work to 
acknowledge the the power of the loss and that's that's just one example of of how this affects it um yeah well it seems like you're saying that it had that the way that we process emotions then has this uh political implications or um outward facing implications of uh, if we are not processing emotions, we're not going to be taking the actions in our lives and in our communities and society that might be appropriate. Yes, I think anger is a deeply Christian emotion. I mean, anger is a neutral emotion. It has no good or bad in itself. But what we do with our anger can be deeply Christian when we are angry about the things that Jesus is angry about then we are motivated to do good in the world. We're motivated to do works of righteousness on behalf of ourselves and others. Um, As we disciple our emotions, as we try to become more like Jesus, then we are changing the inputs, as I said at the beginning, which LaHaye gets right, like what we're putting in affects our emotions. So as we're absorbing the life of Christ, we're absorbing Jesus's values, we're seeing Jesus's expression of emotion, it will actually start to change the emotions that our brains construct. And it'll change the goals that we're working toward. If we take Jesus's mission statement seriously in Luke 4, to open blind eyes, to release the prisoners, to liberate the oppressed, then we're going to take action against systemic oppression and injustice, Mm -hmm. just as one example. We'll take his mission as our own. It makes me think about the LaHaye example, where this woman had anger at her husband for being mistreated, and that anger was actually telling her, like, this is not right and this needs to be changed. And then he taught her to dismiss and disregard it. Yes. And I didn't go further in the Dobson book, but he gives similar examples. A lot of his emotion teaching is is anti-woman. Like his his anti-emotionalism is tied to being anti-woman. Part of that is because emotions tend to be seen as feminine and therefore lesser because Mm -hmm. reason is seen as masculine, which is better. So a lot of his examples are the same. He's teaching women to accept mistreatment. Their anger isn't appropriate and their expressing their expectations for being treated better in relationships is not good. They need to be quiet and just basically accept mistreatment. So many of his examples point that direction. And so Christians need to be doing the opposite of saying, yes, your anger is valid. You should not be treated that way. You don't have to accept that. God doesn't want you to be treated that way. And so many of our emotional problems are not our emotional problems. There are very normal, expected, legitimate emotions that are coming out of being in a terrible situation. Our emotions are telling us the truth. We have every reason to be angry for being mistreated. So it's not that, you know, someone's an angry, bitter, terrible person because they're angry at being in an abusive relationship, to continue that example. Their emotions are saying, hey, this isn't right. So it's not their emotional problem. It's the situation. So when women get out of abusive relationships, they find incredible freedom, incredible healing. They can heal from all that trauma because it's no longer ongoing and they become emotionally free and emotionally healthy. Whereas they could never get there. They could never will their emotions into health while being in an ongoing destructive situation. So our emotions help us take action that I think can be very Christ-like. Wow. So dismissing grief and anger are two ways 
that oppressive systems maintain their hold and control on the world. <laughs> That's the summary right there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And the church has obviously been complicit in that. The um, church has perpetuated it. I can't tell you how many women and men as well I've supported as a pastor who have been abused, whose story was, first I was abused, and then I was re-abused by my church. Mm-hmm. And often the spiritual re-traumatization that happens by bad church responses to abuse is worse for them than the original abuse. Can you explain why that is from this emotional standpoint? Some of it goes to attachment, which you've talked a lot about. Um, We need safe people and safe places and safe communities to attach to. And we assume our church will be that. And when it's not, it devastates something incredibly deep inside of us. So when we are, let's say, sexually abused, uh, which I have been um, at several different points in my life, Mm -hmm. we can say what the abuser did was wrong. So we go to our church or we go to our parents Mm -hmm. or we go to a supportive friend and we expect to be believed and cared for and fought for and vindicated. And so when the, go ahead. I was going to say, sorry to jump in, but as also as a sexual abuse survivor myself, I expect anger from my parents when they find out what has happened to me. Right. Right. An inappropriate response from a caregiver is devastating because it's, confusing because you expect safety. So to be hurt again, judged, cast out, um, disbelieved by the place you expect to be safe, specifically your church, you feel like you have nowhere to go and no one who will defend you. And especially if spiritual language is used to dismiss you or belittle you, it can feel like God is against you. And so the re-traumatization that comes from a poor church response to an abuse disclosure, it is spiritual abuse. So it's, it's secondary abuse. It's institutional abuse. It's institutional betrayal. So then you get into levels of betrayal trauma. And your natural emotions, your God-given emotions that are screaming out, I'm angry and I'm sad because this isn't right and it's not how God created the world to work, God gave us that. We should be having that response. And then the church sees your anger and calls it bitterness and tells you you're a bad person for feeling it. Or they say you're not fit for church leadership because your emotions are out of control when they're not out of control at all. They're doing exactly what God designed them to do, which is to go berserk when you've been mistreated. Your Mm -hmm. emotions should be screaming. If your emotions are not screaming when you've been mistreated, it's because you're so traumatized that your body is shutting down what it should be doing. It's not doing what it should be doing. Mm-hmm. You're freezing instead of, of being angry as you, as you should be. So right, yeah. someone He's, not being emotional is a really bad sign. Right, yeah. Yeah, we're designed to go into fight or flight, and then we protect ourselves, and then we come out of it, right? But if it's just total shutdown, that means that it's unsafe to fight or flight, and then you, we get stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. And the spiritual abuse then has long-ranging results because I know so many survivors who want to follow Jesus, but they can't go to church because it's a minefield of triggers for their trauma. Mm-hmm. 
the songs, the scriptures, the wording, the postures, the teachings trigger their trauma and it's not safe for them to go to church. So they end up having to walk away from Jesus because they don't know where to find him outside of the unsafe church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes me so angry. I wanted to share us leaving our church. We left sort of a well-known church in some circles. The, they were doing a, a series on emotionally healthy spirituality from Peter Scazzaro. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the pastor got up and was like, God can handle your grief. God can handle your anger unless you start to question whether God is good. And then you have to take those emotions and nail them to the cross. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And that was like literally one of the last, like, there was this other church that I'd been wanting to go to for a while, but we were like, well, we need to stay because of, we don't want to be church shoppers. We don't want to, you know, like all that sort of stuff. Like we have to stay committed and I was just like, no, like, this is not okay. And it just, people are like, oh, they're so progressive. And look, they're doing, <laughs> they're doing a series on emotionally healthy spirituality. And then like, literally, it just makes me really sad. Cause I remember being really upset about it. And, and then also thinking about all the survivors that I knew because I had been doing like the lay counseling ministry sort of stuff there that are like in the pews and just getting these terrible, terrible messages about that it's not okay to feel what you're feeling and God is offended by it. That's not scriptural. Someone who would say you can't question God or, or wonder if God is good has not read the Psalms. Right. Has not read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. Has not read Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. We're allowed to question God. Mm-hmm. That's baked into yeah. scripture throughout. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking some time to talk about emotions and sharing. And um, yeah, I'm just really, really excited for your book. Thanks so much, Crispin. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Attached to the Invisible. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and find all our episodes at crispinmayfield.com slash attached. Thanks for listening. This is an area code podcast.